or um, people just don't want to talk about it. People, it is it is a conversation that can be considered sort of a taboo, yeah. somewhat stigmatized, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of times, you know, somebody's going through um, a tough time, and all of a sudden, you see, you hear people say, "Oh, she in the crazy house," you know, mm-hmm. she went to the madhouse. Um, yes. I, I, I have a friend who she used to call it. What she used to call it? Now there was a specific would she call it, you know, like, 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 like she go uptown, like, you know, like it's like yeah. <laughs> went somewhere you know, special, you know, um, even sometimes you found that uh, mental institutions in the Caribbean um, are, 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 have like, it's like a prison, you know, they have almost like cages. I'm not saying that that's, that's the case in Dominica. I'm just saying like, based on, you know, like following different people's statuses, you know, based on talking to a few people. Um, and even, I think I heard you mention it slightly on during your TED talk, um, when you were featured um, um, in your in your TED talk um, a, a, a little while back, you know, that a lot of mental institutions in the Caribbean are like prisons, or at least the, the, the outside of it looks like you're coming to a prison and they have to shut you in and then you have to lock you in and probably put shackles. <laughs> and you know th- that sort of thing um so so it's interesting to know that you feel that a lot of it has to do with the research and and and, and not having enough resources in order to do the research um yes. if that was included if that was introduced then um more of it would be done um why do you think that the entire mental health um fraternity so to speak in the caribbean is so um has made it, has allowed us as Caribbean people to feel somewhat strange about mental health. Hmm, wow, Jill, these are like really serious questions. I mean, <laughs> I think that you have to look at where a lot of psychiatry comes from, right? The history of psychiatry is not one that's unproblematic. There's a lot of racism and racist ideas and really messed up ideas about women and about people from different marginalized communities that psychiatry basically like promoted. So that psychiatry, it's not like it was like only in the US and Canada and the UK and it stayed there. We know that the U, all of those countries had influence in the Caribbean, especially the UK, right? Um, so there was a period in Canada where, um, you know, mental health institutions were also like prisons. They were essentially asylums, right? Like there's so much work that's been done about that. So, you know, but with the advent of something called the institutionalization, which is kind of like a term that brought people out of like, you know, these confined mental health places and introduced something called community health, mental health. Um, you know, you saw that with that kind of attitude shifting, less of a, of a st- like a, there was less of a confinement issue around mental health institutions, but mental health institutions in Canada are still quite stigmatized and mental health is also still stigmatized. We have campaigns now that, you know, seek to do that destigmatizing work, but if there's still campaigns happening, which means that there's still stigma. So when you think about those countries and the Caribbean, you know, the Caribbean is also going to be, you know, influenced by racism and psychiatry, marginalization, you know, negative ideas about communities and groups. So it's simply just replicating the, the, the disciplines that it's been based on, you know what I mean? So I don't think it's a Caribbean problem. I think it's a problem across the board when it comes to m- um, the way most of us look at mental health and stigmatize it. In the Caribbean, you know, there's specific problems and specific kinds of stigma and experiences, but it's not, it's not, um, 
it's not just us, it's everybody who's dealing with this and trying to destigmatize it because we're realizing more and more that it's affecting most of us. Mm. Now, I am going to compliment that as a woman um, who's had kids, you know, um, and I've known of people who, who've gone through the, the similar, similar stages. I remember a few years ago, um, there was a young woman from Dominica um, who, who murdered her two you recall that. I remember, yeah, I remember that story. Canadian and Dominican. I remember. And um, she killed her, her two kids. And I remember the, the authorities in Canada had to, they intervened in the entire thing. And, and the, she was she was sent back from, Dom, she was sent from Dominica back to Canada to receive treatment, et cetera. And it was, it was said or alleged that she had suffered from um, from postpartum depression, right? right. Um, and um, it's it's something that I, I've spoken. I have a, a very a very close um, friend um, who mentioned to me um, what I what I was expecting, and that's something I didn't know. She had she has two kids. Um, she is of she's of Caucasian descent, and she said to me when she had her kids. She, especially with the second one, she thought that she was going to go crazy. She said mm -hmm. she wanted to rip her skin off of her, her body. She mm -hmm. would constantly, like, scratch her, herself. Um, she wanted to, she, they had to take the baby away from her, the second one, the baby away from her, because she did not want to see the child. She, to this day, she cannot understand why she would have felt that way towards a child that she adores so much, you know, that she, she lives for. Um, she could not understand what caused or what triggered or what made her feel how she felt. And uh, it's a question that comes up a lot among um, women, especially women of color, um, because a lot of us, and I say us, because we don't understand what it is and we don't even understand when to recognize it and i remember you know a friend of mine saying to me uh, i'm from dominica and of course it, you know i have quite a bit of friends who've had kids in dominica i i never actually had a child in dominica so i don't really know what and i don't want to say that that's the case but she was talking out of her experience so that may not be the case across the board but based on her experience she was saying that she don't she never remembered one time being asked, are you okay? You know, do you feel um, like killing yourself? Do you feel like killing the baby? Do you feel um, down? If you ever feel, you know, and I remember having my, my especially the, the most recent one, my, my, my baby here, that was something that I got asked every week. You know, how do you feel, you know, on a scale of one to 10? Um, you know, like there, there, there was this interview that went on about uh, in terms of trying to identify whether or not I had or I was suffering from baby blues or or any sort of postpartum depression. What is the difference between baby blues and postpartum depression? <clears throat> well, there's. I think it's really helpful to think about mental maternal mental health on a spectrum. So if you think of you know the baby blues being a mild form of depression. It's usually shorter in length, usually goes away at about 
you know, two months, few weeks at last, it shouldn't really go um, on too too long. There's also, it's a very common form of depression. I say about 80% of women um, in these stats that exist, you know, well, that's a different conversation, but existing stats say about 85, up to 85% of women will experience baby blues. Postpartum depression, you can think of it like in the, right here in the middle. It's a more severe form of depression. It's actually categorized on the DSM. Um, you know, it's a diagnosable mental health uh, condition. Um, the symptoms will last a lot longer. They can get more severe. Um, and But there's, you know, some symptomatology that people would experience, like crying, feeling disconnected from the baby, having suicidal thoughts possibly, um, <clears throat> you know, feeling anxious, feeling disconnected, etc. And, you know, that can last for even, you know, they say up to two years, even longer if it goes untreatable. And then at the other, furthest end of the spectrum would be postpartum psychosis. And postpartum psychosis is like any other form of psychosis. It's basically, um, you know, a mental health break that a person experiences. Um, and, you know, that can also be, have certain symptoms like suicidal ideation or even attempts um, and feeling, you know, very disconnected from your baby, having, you know, manic episodes, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, there's different forms of maternal depression, right? And just because you experience the baby blues doesn't mean that you're going to experience postpartum psychosis. Um, just because you experience postpartum depression doesn't mean that you're going to go to the end of the spectrum as, as well. Um, and people slide between them as well. What causes the baby blues? What, what, why do, why, why do you feel the weight right after having a kid? Why is it 80% based on research or research that you feel that, what, what causes it? Well, you know, I think that the causes are pretty, like, straightforward. It's like, after you have a child, your hormones change, and your hormones have already been changing as you've been pregnant as well. So, you know, with the birth of a child, your hormones and also your entire structure, your whole experience, your whole reality changes. And so sometimes people, well, a lot of us have difficulties dealing with change, essentially, right? Um, and, you know, some of us deal with change in different ways, and some of us deal with it by moving head on to it, some of us uh, experience it, um, you know, by becoming depressed. There's also information and evidence that says that if you experience depression while you're pregnant, that you could also later experience postpartum depression or the baby blues. You know, there's also information and evidence that suggests that if you experience any form of depression, you may experience postpartum depression or the baby blues later on. So it can also be genetic, um, you know, it's hormonal ba background, but you know, it's not completely out of the, like it's not something brand new. People have been actually studying postpartum depression and mild um, depression, like the baby blues, in the Caribbean since the 60s when I started looking at the literature. So, you know, there's been information. It was written all by men, and some of it's pretty messed up, but, you know, people were interested in it. So it's been around for a really long time. And even when I was talking to women in my study in Barbados, you know, um, in different places, like there's women, most of them were from Barbados, but some of them were also from Guyana, St. Vincent, Antigua. And I remember a Guyanese woman saying that her mom had something called maternal melancholy. And I was like, whoa, never heard of that. But essentially what she was explaining was the baby blues are postpartum depression. So these are things that have been happening for a really long time. But we just have more information and research and questions about them, um, you know, through science and innovation. Okay, now we may have uh, even after the fact, you may log in and, and be interested in knowing a little bit more about this. What are some of the um, what are some of the things that we could do 
just from a home standpoint, home basis, you know, mm-hmm. forget about the, the uh, not to consider as yet go reaching out to a medical professional. What are some of the things at home? Um, it might just, it might not only just be a mom, it might be the dad, you know, your husband, your, your boyfriend, you know, um, the people around your house. So what are some of the things that can be done from a home standpoint to help with coping with the baby blues, for example? Well, I mean, support is super important. You know, I am not a mental health care practitioner. I'm a researcher. Um, so I speak from a research perspective. But I remember women in my study who had the baby blues and never experienced postpartum depression talking about how important having support from their moms or their friends or their sisters was. So support meaning, you know, opportunities to have time alone. So giving them childcare. Um, you know, also getting monetary support was super important for women as well. It was helpful, you know, for women who were unable to work immediately after having their child. Um, and, you know, just just from a, a, a people perspective, a lot of my friends have children. Um, and, you know, I'm really aware of, you know, what happens after having a child. So checking in on people, going by, you know, helping, being hands-on, you know, cleaning your friend's house, doing the dishes for them. All that kind of stuff is really, really important. And those are all forms of support. And I would also say that, you know, I know that you said before you go to a healthcare service provider, but, you know, that's actually really important to do from the beginning. So if you're feeling any kind of way about your wellness or your mental health after having a baby or while you're pregnant, I would suggest talking to your doctor or talking to a professional because, you know, it's always easier to catch things early or to prevent them, right? So that's why people were asking you, you know, how are you feeling after having a baby? Because they want to monitor you. So it's more difficult to monitor you if you have fragmented healthcare or if you are not able to be um, forthcoming or, you know, open about your mental health status. So making sure that you have those kinds of... um, outlets and those opportunities to talk to mental health care providers and and maternal health providers about your mental health is really important. So I would say, you know, start talking about it early, even if you feel like a small inkling, like nothing is too small. What happened as it relates to mental health? Um, Quite a bit of research. (laughs) I mean, I... Yeah, I've been able to do some research across, like in the Caribbean as it relates to mental health for sure. Um, I would say that what I've seen the most is that people in the Caribbean are really open and willing to talk about mental health care. I have done, you know, work with LGBT communities. I've done work with women. I've done work with, um, you know, Muslim women in the Caribbean. Um, and everybody is like really open and willing to be really vulnerable about challenges that they're experiencing, whether that's personal or collective. And so that gives me a lot of hope. As somebody who studies and, you know, researches mental health, I'm always like joking that I have to, you know, stay upbeat, I have to stay positive. And, you know, seeing people be so open and so forthcoming and so willing and interested in their health, their mental health, and then their wellness, it actually is really, really exciting. So I would say that in the Caribbean, like there's an openness and a willingness um, that I've experienced of people wanting to talk about it. And I'm sure that that has to also do with the work that I do. I think people know that, you know, this is what my interests are and it's uh, like I try to create a safe space for people. Um, but, you know, I also hear people talking about 
like the lack of access to um, resources that they need. And those are mainly, and I hear that across the Caribbean. You know, that's like a challenge that everybody's talking about, the lack of affordable mental health care. And that's an issue right here in Canada, right? Like, it's, yeah, I'm sure you know. Yeah, it's, it's extremely difficult to get high quality, low cost mental health care that is like consistent. It's so fragmented. I mean, you know, I, I mean, I'm dealing with that now in my day job. So, um, it's you know in the Caribbean it's it's no different like there's not a lot of access to those and there's not a lot of those resources for people and people need good high quality low cost or free mental health care and it should be like in Barbados healthcare is free there's private and there's public like mental health care should be like a strong part of that so you know that should be everywhere we all deserve good mental health care. Okay, we have a comment here from Joelle. She said, "I'm interested in mental health." and studying example mental health issues such as depression during a PhD and how the challenges faced by Caribbean people in one, acknowledging slash diagnosing these issues and two, seeking help. Side note, I always find white colleagues slash friends are more open towards therapy, et cetera, and the challenges. Mm. Um, that's a really important statement and intervention that um, Jarrell is making. Um, you know, I would say that you can lead by example. When you become more open and more willing to talk about mental health, you know, putting information and putting, you know, outputs out there around mental health, whether that's blogging, whether that's content, videos, interviews, whatever, doing things like what you're doing right now, JL, you know, we can normalize talk in our communities about mental health. You know, it's not about any group or any race being more willing to do something. It's just you know, a practice. So it's something that we must practice, but do it in our own specific cultural kind of context and in our own cultural ways, right? We do talk about mental health. Like I was listening to um, 2019 Soka the other day and like half of it's talking about, you know, madness and mental health. Like, yeah, <laughs> I was listening to a song and I was like, oh, okay, this is about mental health, I get it. And you know, it's, you know, I love Soka, so you're not even thinking about it, but you're, you're at the gym and you're like, wait a minute. So we talk about these things all the time. Like we talk about, you know, the person who's on the street who's a, a madman or a madwoman, however we frame it. Um, it's just that those the ways that we talk about it can be problematic and we need to shift those. Um, and we need to talk about it in more positive ways. But when we talk about things like self-care and, you know, um, you know, treating yourself and things like that, that is also mental wellness. So I think that we have to think about what we're listening to and what we're looking out for. Um, as coded words for mental health and mental health care. Like, you're not going to walk into a, a polyclinic or a community health center and a woman's going to say, I'm experiencing, not everyone's going to say, I'm experiencing postpartum depression. She's going to describe her symptoms, right? So it's what you want to hear. So I think that we need to start turning our ears on in different ways so that we can listen in our own, like, cultural ways. Mm, that's important. Thank you for, uh, for that, uh, Joelle. Um, what do you think... Uh, causes Caribbean people or specific because uh, I know you said from the time you started talking to Caribbean people you know, they, they're very open but in general I still find Caribbean people they don't want to talk about it it's mm -hmm. like um, you you tell them oh you need to go you need to get treatment and they think initially from the time they uh, a psychiatrist tells you that they're gonna put you on medication and you've been deemed a crazy person you know, uh, uh, oh, she off her meds, you know, 
um, you 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 automatically called uh, a crazy person. So I, I as much as so when you were conducting your research, of course, people will be willing. I I feel people will be more willing to speak to you because they 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 see the need for help. But in terms of going out there and getting the help, yeah, different thing. That's a different, totally different mm-hmm. of fish. Yeah. Now, um, why do you think people uh, are so so resistant or, or or speak less about um, their mental health? And how do you think we can change that? Well, I mean, this reminds me of like something that happened in my research. Um, so, in my project in Barbados on postpartum depression and the baby blues, I ended up building into the intervention a one-hour free counseling session for any woman that in- did an interview with me. And so, there are several women who said, like, you know, I'm going to call the therapist, and I, you know, I'm excited and thank you so much. And you know, I would like communicate to the therapist. You know, you might get some calls from some, you know, people. I can't tell you their names, but you know, they're, you know, just be on the lookout. You know, not one woman called and used the therapist. And like, I was really, really uh, pragmatic in how I chose the therapist. If she was somebody who was Bayesian but not educated in Barbados, so I thought that I could give women like kind of a comfort level of like, you know, because people talked about wanting confidentiality um, and, you know, feeling like things weren't that anonymous, you know, and feeling like that was unsafe. So I did all these things and no women ended up using her or calling her. And I was always like, I was really interested by that finding or by that what happened there because you know it was free um but you know nobody accessed it and i started thinking about why people might do that and i said you know it could be that number one it's still stigmatized right like there's still stigma around going to this person to talk about my issues that i'm having you know with connecting with my child um you know or maybe people thought that you know the interview that they did with me was like kind of like cathartic you know, like they got things off their chest and that's what they kind of just needed to do and that was enough. And they saw me as being safe because, you know, I don't look, I don't sound like a Bayesian and I'm not obviously born there. So, you know, I think about why those things happened um, regularly and it relates to your question because, you know, it, you know, I think that there is still stigma about mental health, right? There is still, still, still stigma about taking medication. There's still stigma about going into mental health institutions. And women in my studies talked about that, even being seen going into the Black Rock Psychiatric Hospital in Barbados was like a really stigmatizing thing. But talking about going there was quite stigmatizing. So, you know, I think that there's still that, that people have to confront. But then at the same time, you know, there was... Um, you know, women who talked about wanting to have, you know, talk therapy or not being able to have, you know, a social worker or somebody that they could just talk about their problems with. Instead, they were being sent to psychiatrists who could give them medication, but they wanted just to have that opportunity to talk. And so one of the biggest findings in my work was that women were talking about, like, why isn't there a support group for postpartum depression and the baby blues from maternal depression. And so, you know, that was something that they specifically kind of like outlined what it would look like. It would be confidential. It would be other women who had experienced postpartum depression or the baby blues. And, you know, it would just be like a comforting and safe space. Mm-hmm. So there's all that in Barbados. So I think that maybe if we had more options of what mental health care looked like, maybe we would see more people accessing it. I mean, like right now you can, in Canada, like if you have money, you can get, mental health care via Skype, you can do it on an app, you can go in person, you know, you can, there's all different types of ways. If we have those kinds of similar, like, frameworks and opportunities in the Caribbean, maybe more people, and if they were low cost and free or affordable, 
you know, maybe more people would be willing to do the proactive work around their mental health care. So I always think that, you know, it's not a matter of people, I think about what are the issues and the the factors surrounding people that prevent them from doing things that they know they should do or feel that they should definitely do. Well, Jarrell adds something to that. She said she finds that there's a stigma around mental health in the Black community. And in her case, she was almost embarrassed to admit that uh, she needed help because it felt like a weakness. I assumed that was a cultural thing, why others would speak openly about going to therapy. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some work that I did a couple of years ago about like st- the image of like what black women are supposed to be. And there's so much rich information about that. So I think that for black women, there's a particular emphasis on strength and resilience and being able to conquer anything because your ancestors did it. So you'll get over a little postpartum depression or, you know, anxiety or stress, you know what I mean? But, you know, those kinds of attitudes have been born out of a specific kind of context, right? A lot of our ancestors were in situations, pardon me? They were were in a lot of situations where they had to cope. They had no choice, right? You don't have the opportunity to get help at all. And so that is what coping mechanisms they had to adopt for their situation. And that worked for them because they were fighting for their lives, right? But we can't use the same frameworks for us in this current situation because we have not only stuff that we're dealing with now, but all of that stuff that happened to our answers, that intergenerational trauma that we carry with us, we have to deal with that too. So we need to find way more creative and complex ways to deal with it. And that might look like, you know, talking to a therapist, that might look like medication, that might look like meditation, it might look like yoga, it might look like spirituality, it might look like a mixture of all those, it might look like nothing at all, something that I didn't say, but I mean, we have to, you know, in our community, like, as I said, we have to normalize this kind of talk, so when I get opportunities like this to talk about mental health in this kind of setting, I'm always happy to take it, because it's normalizing the talk, like, everybody who's listening and everybody who will listen will hopefully get an opportunity to think about how they think about mental health and to challenge that and to think about how we can make it more normal. We, we have some going on here. Um, asking, do you think people are less prone to get help because of privacy and accountability issues or concerns? Oh, absolutely. I mean, based, based on my research alone, that was one of the hugest things that women talked about as being, um, you know, a big barrier for them getting help. That, you know, they were not sure that the nurses or the healthcare providers at the hospital would keep their information private. That's that they, yeah, I mean, they, they, a lot of women talked about that. And that's not only just women in the Caribbean. Like, one of my mentors, her name was Don Edge. She's a Jamaican um, researcher in Manchester, UK. And she deals with mental health amongst Caribbean women too. And she did some postpartum depression work with Caribbean descent women in the UK. And they were also worried about confidentiality. So, you know, this is something that, you know, it could be in a small um, village in Dominica or, you know, in a larger city in Barbados or, you know, with Caribbean um, people living in the diaspora in Toronto or London, right? Like these are issues that follow us. And, you know, in the Caribbean, it's even more pronounced because the space is so small. So even like I would like interview a woman like two weeks ago and then go to the market and there she is. And I'm like there with like, you know, my friends or my stepmom. 
And it's like, you know, like they, they would always greet me. Like they were always so like gracious. Still to this day, I run into them. They text me, you know, people, women from my study. And, um, you know, how do I introduce you to like my friends? Like, so like, Mary, like, how do you guys know each other? Oh, you know, we work together. But, you, know, you, just, you just figure it out like in the moment. But for me, privacy and confidentiality are extremely important. I take that really, really seriously. Um, and, you know, I think that was also one of the strengths of my research that I assured them that like your information is going to stay with me and it's going to, you know, be completely confidential and private. And, you know, you don't have to worry about that for me. And, you know, I think that that was also probably one of the hesitancies that some women had towards getting other health care from, you know, their doctors or their other nurses. You know, maybe they thought that they weren't going to be as confidential with their information as possible. And that's a valid concern. Uh, do you more to be done in the Caribbean? And I like to focus a lot of my attention in the Caribbean because I do have majority of my viewers are of Caribbean people. And, and it's all about helping my people, right? <laughs> um, do you think there's more that can be done, or what do you think can be done in terms of um, professionals um, uh, being keeping people's business, you know, to themselves? Because my mom, I grew up. My mom was a nurse, right? Um, I grew up around her, and boy, I wish my mom was like. Beffy sometimes, so, so we could know what's going on in the community. But she never yeah. tell us. Like we, were, like somebody, like she was on call twenty four hours. So at any time, someone could come to the house. And the only time we knew what was wrong with someone was if they were pregnant and they were having a baby. You know, that was the only. Or if the person died, you knew the person died, and you somebody might say they died from a heart attack or. Something. But it never came out of my mom. You know, like yeah. it was like pulling teeth trying to get her to. To say some, but that is not always the case in a lot of, uh, for, for a lot of um, persons who come in contact with different um, medical professionals, that they no no um, privacy act or something of that sort in place to shouldn't they be shouldn't your information be treated like you were going to a lawyer, you know? I mean, yeah, everybody deserves to have their information kept private and confidential. Um, in research, there's like something called ethics. You have to be anonymous. You have to make sure that people's information is kept, not only their names, but like identifying factors. So like, you know, if JL had, you know, a mole here and a mole here, I'd have to make sure that I don't describe her in a way I do that identifies her. <laughs> I have a mole here and a mole there. <laughs> I'm just saying, I, you know, like I have a mole, but you know, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, like there's, you, there's a code of ethics that you have to act by. And doctors and them, they have they have a, a similar like, they know what they're supposed to do. So I mean, I read this um, article. It's a, it was a research project. I believe it was conducted in Barbados, actually, about issues of confidentiality. And actually, nurses and doctors themselves were saying that they felt that they were there wasn't enough confidentiality amongst themselves. So I was like, this is pretty telling. Huh. Like you know, they're even nervous about like amongst themselves. So. People just need to act way more professional. And also, like, researchers need to act with a high level of ethical um, integrity. Like, you, if you're coming, especially if you're someone like me, you know, I'm definitely, I consider myself a Bayesian. I'm a citizen by the center. I have, like, passport, the whole thing. But, you know, I'm coming into a space that I'm not from. So I have to be, like, first of all, humble. I have to have integrity. I have to have, you know, a certain level of professionalism. So people, like, researchers need to do the same thing. So most people go to the Caribbean. And, you know, I find this particularly sometimes with people who are not from the space. 
um, you know, people act lackadaisical and like people's, this is people's lives. You have to treat it with some seriousness. So I always approach my work with a level of, I try my best to approach it with a level of, you know, um, professionalism and confidentiality. Um, and I just think that we, people need to do the same thing, whether you're a nurse or a doctor or a midwife or a social worker. People need to make sure that they're, you know, ensuring that they're doing the right thing.